when you're uh, when you're training for ministry, uh, training to learn how to preach, or um, you go to conferences or take courses on preaching, one of the things people will tell you as you're learning is they say, uh, "Don't get up there." Because you have to say something. Get up there because you have something to say. You know, sounds good, right? It's good. It's like it's it's not just like, oh no, they need me to say like I'm this is my job. I'm supposed to say something, but something that needs to be said. That's what that's what compels you to get up and to share something. That gets you excited. As a seminary student, you're like, yeah, this is great. I'm gonna preach with passion. I'm gonna bring the fire and, and all this stuff. And, and it seems like, in, in my mind anyway, you make an equation between having something to say and being happy about saying it. That's not necessarily always accurate. For example, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 23, the passage that Femi just read for us, has something to say. It is something that needs to be said. It is something that is heavy. And it's something that, frankly, he laments even having to say. By the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to lament with sorrow that he has had to say the words that he's had to say because he knows they're going to come true. As I've tried to process Jesus' tone, um, his, his, this, the sort of pitch that he arrives at in this chapter compared with the gospel as it's been sort of building, his message has been building, the clarity, the urgency have all been building throughout the gospel to this point. The, the, the closest analogy I could think of is, and maybe this just reflects the type of TV shows we watch in our home, you know, but you know the storyline, it's, it's pretty cliche where like someone's on an island and like there's a lighthouse, but the lighthouse is out, and there's a ship, you know, coming towards the island. And you know, for us, that happens in Paw Patrol. So I see that in Paw Patrol. I think that happens in other shows too. Actually, I saw it in Bunked. So those of you who are into preteen dramas on Disney, Disney Plus, you know, you'll you'll recognize this too. Uh, there's 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 this plot line that goes something like the ship is steaming towards the island or a bunch of rocks, and the the lighthouse is somehow not shining the light, and and there's this urgency. We need to get the light on so that they'll see and they'll turn. And, and the urgency builds as the ship comes closer and closer, and you want the ship to turn. In this passage, though, in, in this moment in Jesus' life and in Jesus' ministry, the problem isn't that the light isn't shining. Jesus has been clear. He has proclaimed the gospel. He has worked his miracles so everyone can see that the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. The problem is that even though the light is shining, they still don't see. So the desperation grows and grows so that you come to a passage like this where Jesus needs to address us because frankly, some people in his day who were hearing him and some people in our day even now who are hearing us or hearing these words remain in danger of spending eternity in torment of soul, shipwrecked in death and destruction because they can't see or won't see Jesus and turn. You will spend eternity knowing that you missed the opportunity for joy and justice and fellowship 
and your experience will continually be one of destruction and death. At root, no matter what issue you take, no matter what issue you take with Jesus, no matter what the issue, the conflict is that you don't like about what he says or what he does or what he demands, at root, the issue, as we saw last week and continues to be this week, is we just don't see Jesus for who he is. What Jesus is going to do in Matthew 23 for those who have ears to hear and for those who don't, though he still pleads with them, is to hear and turn, to see and turn. What he's going to do for us and for that audience is lay out for us, not simply the results of what will happen when you crash into the rock, certainly it will get there, but even he's going to describe what your experience will be like now being tossed in the waves of life here without knowing Jesus, without having your life rightly ordered by Jesus. What will the chaos be until the destruction comes? So first of all, Jesus says, if you don't see me, if you don't see Jesus, you will fight You'll fight for rank now, fight for, fight for standing, fight for place, for honor now, and then be humbled later. So in verse 1, he says this, Matthew records this, Then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, when you're reading narrative, it's, it's, it's important to notice um, who someone is speaking to when they speak, right? Jesus is speaking to the crowd and to the disciples, so in other words, he's, he's pleading with them for something, even though he's going to talk to them about the scribes and Pharisees who are there. Like, they're there. They were just interacting with Jesus. So it's like if I'm talking with you and then I turn to another person beside you, and can, can you believe this guy? Like, while you're still there? Like, that creates a really awkward situation, right? But what Jesus is doing is having addressed them and confronted them and reminded them at the end of the last chapter, your root problem is you don't understand who I am, the Messiah, the greater son of David. Having addressed that, he's now going to turn to the crowd and say, you have to choose. Will you listen to them or will you listen to me? So he speaks to the crowd, to his disciples, about them. Verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they sit on Moses' seat. So, do and observe whatever they tell you. Presumably that's insofar as they actually teach what Moses taught. But do not do the works that they do. For they preach, but don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. Put them on your shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Here's, here's the root of it. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor, the feasts, the synagogues. They love the, the places of honor. They love the titles of honor. They want to be called all the right things. They're fighting for rank. They want to show it in their clothes, like phylacteries. What are phylacteries? They're the little uh, boxes. So in the, in the law was given instruction, you know, these words are precious, so, so like bind them to you. Bind them to your wrists or tie them on your forehead or put them on the posts of your house as if to say your house is built on these things. Probably intended metaphorically. They're like, no, no, we're going to take this literally. We're going to take boxes with tiny little scriptures and like tie them to our bodies. And by the way, my phylacteries are bigger than your phylacteries. It just becomes a way of boasting in what's supposed to be a demonstration of humility that we need God. 
And they turn it into a show, a way of proving that they're more or better or greater than those around them. They want the positions of honor. They want the titles of honor. They love, verse 7, greetings in the marketplace, being called rabbi by others. But you, again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, you are to be different than that. You are not to be called rabbi. You have one teacher. You are all brothers. And call no man father on earth. You have one father who's in heaven. Jesus is referring to the practice of talking about dead rabbis who'd gone before, who had taught certain things in the word, and esteeming them as father Aligning yourself with them. That's my father. Jesus says, no, no, you have one father. You have a father in heaven. The rest of you are brothers. You have one teacher who is Christ. The rest of you are brothers. Neither, verse 10, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. We know from the broader teaching of Scripture, Jesus is not opposed to showing honor. In fact, In Romans, Paul is going to say that one way of demonstrating love in the body of Christ is to show honor, to give honor to whom honor is due. What Jesus is contending with is the reality that in our hearts we want to be called something. Like, oh man, yeah, I see that in my workplace. Yeah, I see that among among (laughs) non-Christians. It's easy just to look outside the church and see that, but in reality we need to hold up a mirror a little bit too. Just in recent years, several apologists who try to make names for themselves go by the title of doctor and then get exposed later as not actually having real doctorates. What are we doing? This is a description of those who do not know Jesus, who do not know the Christ. Jesus says, you will be different. Verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The relationships are going to be rightly ordered as Christ is placed at the top of the heap. The one who is greatest, the one who is esteemed, we see him, we know him to be a servant. And so the greatest will be the one who is most like him. Jesus says there's joy here. There's freedom here for you as a Christian community as you embrace this. Here's the reality Jesus is laying out for his disciples, for his community. As you exist in the kingdom of heaven here on earth, we become a place where there is freedom from fighting for rank. It's not about who's the greatest among us, who who gets greeted the most, who has the best title, who, who do we esteem the most in our congregation. We have the freedom of John the Baptist to rejoice when we shrink in the eyes of others if it means that Christ is being magnified. We have the freedom to entrust our exaltation to Christ. This is the pattern of Philippians 2, right? The pattern of our king. The one who, if we see and turn, this is the one that we follow. It's one who took on flesh and being found in human form, humbled himself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, that in his utter humiliation, God sees him, resurrects him, exalts him to the right hand of God on high so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. He is exalted because he was first of all humiliated. He was humbled. He entrusted his exaltation to his Father and he is now exalted and reigning. And this is the pattern that Peter lays out for us in 1 Peter 5. Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that, here's why, that at the proper time he may exalt you. If you rightly see Jesus, you can follow him into the valley of humiliation, believing that at the right time and in the right way, he will exalt you. This is not saying how you are viewed doesn't matter. It's saying having a right view and estimation of you comes from God and from God alone. It's not something to entrust to people. If you believe the gospel that Jesus suffered and died for you, do you then believe that he will now abandon you? Or do you believe that the one who died for you, lives for you, will return for you, and will bring you to himself where you will experience true and genuine exaltation in his presence? So why are you fighting for rank now? I've heard stories, read stories of people who have adopted children from overseas, whether from uh, third world nations or orphanages that were, that were particularly uh, poor. And the children, when they come, one of the first things they sometimes do is they will begin to stockpile food for themselves. So when they get food, they'll keep it and they'll stash it around the house. They'll store it. They'll keep the scraps for themselves because they haven't yet learned that there's more food coming. And so they, they think they need to protect themselves, look out for themselves. And so they keep the scraps so that they'll have something later. The only way to cure them of this behavior is for them to learn to trust that their parents will provide for them. And what their parents will provide is so much better than the scraps that they hoard. Guys, when we live for the praise of people, we're hoarding scraps. Your father's got a feast for you. He will exalt you. You do not have to fight for rank, for exaltation. You don't have to live in the eyes of other people, of what they think about you. If you don't know Jesus, this is your life. You're owned by what people think about you. You're owned by rank. You want to appear as something before people. The religious leaders put this on display in the way that they dress, in the way that they pray, in the way that they walk into rooms and look for seats of honor and making sure you know who they know. All the boasting that goes along with this. We might do it different. Maybe it's not just doing my devotions, but making sure I post them on Instagram. Or maybe it's making sure I kind of name drop who I'm hanging out with this weekend, or the types of discipling relationships that I'm in, or how many people I'm walking with, or the way that we sing, or even the way that we pray for others, or the way that we serve and serve and serve, all of these things, good things can be done in a way in our hearts that's just striving for rank and approval in the eyes of other people. And in as much as we do this, for other people to think highly of us, we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. And you're missing out. Because even if you succeed and you get the praise of people and other people esteem you and say all kinds of wonderful things about you, it's just scraps. 
compared to the exaltation that the Father wants to give you. If you you miss Jesus, the one who is humbled for you, serves you, and will exalt you, your life will be filled with fighting for rank now, and then in the judgment, the crashing into the rocks, you will be humbled, you will be exposed and shown to be what you really are, which is nothing. So Jesus warns us. He also warns us that we need to see him because if we don't see Jesus, here's the second thing. We won't just fight for rank. We'll fight for righteousness. Righteousness now, and then we'll be judged later. The waves, the chaos now is us trying to work for righteousness. Righteousness before God, righteousness before others, and then we'll just be judged later. Jesus moves on in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. See, now he was talking to the crowd and to the disciples. Now the audience changes. Now he's speaking directly to the scribes and to the Pharisees. Though again... With the crowds and the disciples nearby, it's certainly a warning to them if they choose to follow the scribes and Pharisees of what will come for them as well. Jesus says, woe to you. That's a weird word. We don't use that contemporary, like, you're not, like, woe to Torontonians because of snow. Like, we don't usually use that in, in English nowadays. What does the word woe mean? It's just an announcement of something sorrowful or grievous coming upon you. It's, it's not vindictive or vitriolic. It's simply lamenting the reality that judgment is coming. And it's going to be terrible. And Jesus is announcing these woes, and he gives seven of them. So beginning in verse 13, and then again in verse 15, and then verse 16, you start to see those being laid out. There's significance in the fact that there's seven. Seven being biblically the number of fullness or completeness. That is utter and complete destruction. It is final and full destruction. It is the judgment of God that is irreversible and final that is coming on these scribes and Pharisees because they are hypocrites trying to make themselves appear righteous when in reality they're not. So Jesus gives these seven woes and um, really they're structured in, um, in, in a way that we call a, a chiasm which, which really means the first half mirrors the second half and all of it funnels into the, the center which is the fourth woe as we're going to see as we go. But Jesus addresses the scribes and Pharisees in verse 13 and announces this woe. He says, here's why. Here's why judgment is coming. Because you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You don't enter. And you don't let them enter either. Why is that? Well, what keeps them out of the kingdom? We saw this at the end of the last chapter. They've rejected Jesus. They reject him. They don't see him, and so destruction is looming. And not just for them, but the second woe announces this reality too. Where you go and where you actually have success at converting other people to your views, you're damning them to hell as well, because now they're not seeing Jesus rightly either. So what you do has impact on others. Not for good. You think it's for good. You're trying to persuade them, but in reality, you're persuading them down the path to hell Jesus continues to pronounce these woes. In verse 16, he announces the woes on those who have this intricate system. He's giving an example, this intricate system of what oaths are binding. So if you swear by this, it's binding, but by that, it's not. It's, it's really a way of trickery. It's manipulation. It's, it's a way of trying to live out righteousness. We know the rules. We know the laws. We set the rules of engagement, set the rules of what needs to be kept so that we can then walk in them and show everyone how righteous we are. They've taken the law 
<laughs> the heart of the law, God wants you to speak truth. It's the heart. But they've made it a matter of knowing all the right rules and all the right circumstances and then making sure you do that and you keep that set of rules as if that's somehow pleasing to God. When in reality, they've externalized the law. They've missed the heart of the law. They've misunderstood it. Which brings us to the center of the chiasm. Verse 23, the fourth woe. This is where all of it funnels down to, which is this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You you tithe, you give 10% of the lightest things that you own. The spices that are in your cupboards. And Jesus doesn't say that's wrong. He doesn't say, don't do that. He says, yeah, go ahead, do that. If that's a way of worshiping God, giving 10% of all the produce of the land, great, go ahead, do that. But the problem is, in measuring out the lightest things, you miss the heaviest thing, the weightiest matter of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. This is the heart of God revealed in the prophets. As the prophets taught and tried to apply the heart of God from the law, He said, he's shown you, oh man, what's required of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God in covenantal faithfulness with God, showing love for others. This is the heart of what God has revealed, and they missed it. They missed it. They focused on the meticulous, tiny little details, and they missed the heart of God. Jesus gives this image. It's supposed to get stuck in your mind. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. <laughs> That's supposed to be funny. Like, actually, imagine it. Like, I've, I've, had, uh, I've had pills that were really big for stuff I've had to take before, and people call them, like, horse pills for some reason. So, okay, that looks really big. I guess that's the kind of pill you'd give a horse. But, like, this isn't a horse pill. This is, like, actually a horse. This is, like, you're supposed to, like, what are you, 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 you missed the obvious because you're trying to make a system of details that you can keep. And that everyone can see that you're keeping. So that your righteousness is put on display for people. Jesus begins to scope back out. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 25. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate. But inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. All of your rules. You've taken the law. and These righteous, so-called righteous ways. of We've got... Rules about how you're supposed to clean plates and dishes so that it's ceremonially clean. And Jesus is like, you're, you're like those plates. You're clean on the outside, but inside, you're still filthy. You can do nothing to cleanse your hearts. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. This is, this is like the second woe, right? Where they make people a child of hell like themselves. So also here, the whitewashed tombs, the tombs, uh, a tomb would make you ceremonially unclean in the Old Testament if you came anywhere near dead people. And so if there were tombs that couldn't be seen from a distance, one of the ways you could warn people was to, to, to whitewash the tomb, to paint it so that it would be visible from a distance. The idea being that if we, if we somehow identify this as a tomb, then it will keep people clean. But what Jesus is saying is you can paint the tomb all you want, but inside there's still dead people. And you're, you're like a tomb. Oh, look, we're about keeping people clean, but in reality, you still make people filthy. You still do more damage than good because you've missed the heart of the law. And so Jesus comes to the last woe, 
which he expands on the most in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Imagine the audacity of one generation pretending like they're more righteous than those who came before them. I think that still preaches. Verse 31. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. <laughs> and you're lamenting, oh, we wouldn't have done that like our fathers did. You're owning the fact that they're your fathers. And Jesus says, hey, guess what? They're your fathers in more ways than just genealogy. You're actually like them. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Go ahead, walk it out in your hardness of heart against God and his word and against me as the fulfillment. You're going to kill the prophets. You're going to kill me. The word that Jesus uses in verse 32 to fill up then the measure of your your fathers is the same word that he used in chapter 5. The Son of Man has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He came to fill them up, to bring them to climax, to bring them to conclusion. And so in the same way, what they are fulfilling, what they are filling up is the pattern of their fathers rejecting the law, rejecting the prophets, rejecting the heart of God, rejecting the deliverance God offers, and ultimately killing his messengers. Verse 35 said on you, may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Jesus is, is saying, All the way back from Genesis, the beginning of scriptures, when Cain murdered Abel because he was righteous and his his brother wasn't. All the way to to Zechariah, uh, who was murdered in 2 Chronicles, which in the Hebrew canon, 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Old Testament. So he's saying from the beginning to the end, all the martyrs who have always been rejected, who have always been killed, you're going to continue that pattern just like your fathers. Though you pretend you're better than them, you act like you're different. Our generation's better than those generations. We understand righteousness, but you're the exact same. You just put on a good show and pretend like you're different. And all of it's going to lead ultimately to the crucifixion of Christ. So you have at the center, at the heart, the fact that they missed the heart of both the law and the prophets, which then allows them to simply make rules to try to put forward their own righteousness so that everyone would see them as righteous. But then when the law and the prophets point that out, they have to reject them. And so they put them to death and they lead others to hell. All because they're committed to making a show of their own righteousness. I heard it said um, that no human can remain unjustified. Either she will be justified by someone else or justify herself. That's... If you pause and reflect on that for a little while, I think you'll find that to be true. Humans cannot exist in a state where they are disapproved of, where they are invalidated, 
where they are told they are unrighteous. So intuitively, what we have to do is we have to fix this problem of people looking at us like we're unrighteous or thinking that God looks at us like we're unrighteous. We can't exist in that state, so we have to do something about it. So either someone else will speak justification over us, or we'll have to try to put our own justification, our own righteousness on display so that people will think well of us. Where do people around us seek a claim? Seek the proclamation of their own righteousness. Is it in our hashtags? Our causes? Our flags? Identifying the right victims, being the right allies, making sure we celebrate masks and vaccines, righteousness? Or is it in our opposition to all those things? I'm not like them. I don't take up those causes. And now all of a sudden that somehow becomes my badge of righteousness. What's the response? We get mad at people? We're going to signal all their virtues and put them on display? I think the woes of Jesus is an appropriate response. They're longing to be justified. But their righteousness won't cut it. Jesus knows that judgment is coming. Jesus knows that judgment is coming because he's the one who's come to bear it for those who trust in him. See, this is, this is really remarkable, right? This has, to, this has to frame our heart and our conversation as we interact with those who are trying to put their righteousness on display, trying to earn their own justification. To recognize that at heart, what they're acknowledging is their own unrighteousness. Their own need to be justified. That's what lies behind it. And what Jesus is saying is if you see me, you'll see one who does actually have sufficient righteousness. Who has come to live for you in your place. So that if you trust in me, all my righteousness, my obedience will be given to you. So that you will be covered. So that you will have a righteousness that endures. See, Jesus is looking at them and saying no matter how much you paint yourself up, how much makeup you put on, spiritual makeup you put on to try to make yourself appear beautiful. No matter how many filters you put over your life, the reality reality is it's never enough and you know that and Jesus sees through it that's not supposed to be scary that's supposed to be freedom giving because Jesus is trying to free you from a life where you are constantly striving to prove you're righteous enough you're good enough you're virtuous enough you've got it together enough you're religious enough but to simply trust in the one who came to live the righteousness that is demanded of us and took the woes, he took the judgment, he took the wrath in our place to make us righteous. Jesus knows your righteousness is insufficient to make you right before God. He's offering you an alternative. He's calling you to see him and to turn. But if you don't trust Christ, you're going to be stuck in that hamster wheel, running and running, always trying to be good enough, righteous enough, and prove it to people enough that you've done enough right things so that you're good. And then in the end, Jesus says, you'll be judged. You spend your whole life trying to prove it to people, only in the end to be exposed before God. If you don't see Jesus and turn, 
Spend your life fighting for rank and righteousness only to be humbled and judged. But there's more. Jesus says if you don't see him, you will fight. You'll fight his reign, his kingdom, his rule now. But you will bend the knee later. This is coming. Verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children Together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The house of Jerusalem is the house that Pastor Josh Tong was just reminding us of in Psalm 127. That we can labor to build as much as we want, but unless the Lord builds it, it'll crumble. It's useless. It's vain. All our building is vain. It's the house of the temple, which in the next chapter Jesus is going to describe. Describe the destruction, the coming destruction of the temple. He is going to walk out of the temple as a symbolic display of the fact that God has left the building. The house will fall. It has become desolate. Jesus says, if you reject them, You can oppose him. You can even put him to death. But eventually, you'll bow the knee. He's going to say things you don't like. He's going to make demands that you don't want to submit to. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to fight him? People killed his prophets, but the message was maintained. People killed him, but he rose from the dead. In trying to fight against his reign and establish your own kingdom and live your own way, it's like trying to stop an avalanche with an umbrella. Here is one who was resurrected from the dead. You can't stop him. No matter how hard you fight, Here's the reality. The stone that the builders rejected, God has made the capstone, and it will crush you if you oppose him. Jesus says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's reminding them that he will return. He's walking out of the temple now, though he's pleading with them, but he will return one day in judgment. And every eye will see, and every knee will bow, and everyone will acknowledge that he is Lord, without question, whether you like it or not. So Jesus pleads with you to turn. Because in a, in a fist fight, between an island and a boat, the boat always loses. If you're, if you're a Christian, I hope, I hope, The weight of this word from Jesus in this chapter, I hope the applications are immediately obvious to you. We need to be a people who are moved to say hard things because they need to be said. To those we love, to those with whom we come in contact who are not seeing the lighthouse, look and see and turn. I hope you understand that we need to say something. And I hope you understand that we need to say something with the heart of Jesus. Not in boastfulness, not in arrogance, not with a tone of superiority, but with a heart full of weeping 
for the impending destruction that's awaiting those who reject Jesus. We need to say hard things with a heavy heart. And ultimately, we need to be a people who pray. Because if the problem isn't that the light is, is shining, like the light's shining, it's just that people are blind to seeing it, ultimately what we need is a work of God to open their eyes so that they can see. So we need to be a people who pray. Ultimately, what Matthew 23 is reminding us of is simply this, the one who has come to suffer and die, who just in a few chapters, in a few days from speaking these words, will suffer and die, the one who you have killed in your rebellion, the one you rejected and worked against, the one you hated and fought, the one who will return to judge, is still pleading with people now to see him, to turn, and to live. Let's pray.